Welcome to the Cedarville Stories podcast. What do adoption and Hallmark movies have in common? Donna Van Leer. Enjoy this week's episode to find out how. Thank you, Sarah, for that introduction. I'm Mark Weinstein, and I want to welcome everyone back to another episode of the Cedarville Stories podcast. We're coming to the end of our third season, and I want to thank you for being a faithful listener to the program. The podcast continues to increase in number of people listening all over the world, so thank you very much. And as I've said in previous programs, if you have a great guest that you would like for me to consider for a future podcast, please email me at mweinstein at cedarville.edu. For today's program, I'm being joined by New York Times and USA Today bestselling author Donna Van Leer from a residence in suburban Nashville, Tennessee. But make no mistake, by heart or at heart, Donna is a native of the Buckeye State and a graduate of Cedarville University. Donna, welcome to the podcast. Well, thanks for having me, Mark. It's great to have you. Uh, For further introduction, Donna is the recipient of multiple industry awards, including a Retailer's Choice Award for Fiction, a Dove Award, a Silver Angel Award, and two Audi Awards for Best Inspirational Fiction. She's been nominated for the Gold Medallion Book of the Year and is a member of the Ohio Foundation of Independent Colleges Hall of Excellence, where she is joined by such luminaries as Coretta Scott King, Hugh Downs, Senator John Glenn, and Lieutenant General Lauren Reno. Donna, uh, she's also, I should say, the author of 17 books, including The Christmas Shoes and The Christmas Blessing. In all six of her books, have been made into movies. With that as a backdrop, Donna, I'm interested in learning what motivated you to get into writing Christmas-based books. Well, Christmas-based, that's interesting because uh, my husband managed a group called New Song. They were part of Christian music for many years. Actually, they're still part of Christian music. But many years ago, we were backstage at a concert in Knoxville, Tennessee. It was actually July. It was sweltering hot that day. I remember that. And Eddie Carswell, who's the leader, he's the founder of the group, uh, main songwriter. He said, hey, Donna, I'm thinking about writing a song. And he gave me just this short two-sentence premise of it. He said, what do you think? Do you think that'd be a good Christmas song? And I said, well, you know, Eddie, I actually think that would be a good book. And uh, he was just kind of saying it kind of tongue-in-cheek but he said well hey you're the writer you know get to working on it and he was just half half kidding he didn't know that I would but on our drive back to Nashville I was already formulating uh the plot in my head because whatever he told me it was just short enough and simple enough that it just really sparked my imagination and that book actually became the Christmas shoes Um, It was a song first, obviously, because it takes a lot less time to write a song (laughs) than a book. Um, But that became the the song in the book, The Christmas Shoes, and uh, that became a movie on CBS television. It was sent to a producer in L.A., and she took it to lunch one afternoon under the premise of She's just going to go to lunch. She's, she'll start reading it, but then she'd go back to work. But she said she sat there for the next few hours and she finished the book. Then she went back to work and told her working partner, I just found the next book that we need to make into a movie. And so that's how it became a movie. 
Wow, that's a fascinating story. So uh, what was it like when, uh, or how did you get the, the news that uh, your book was going to be made into a movie? Uh, my literary agent, she called me and said that, you know, this uh, producer had picked it up and read it and got in touch with them and said, we want to make it into a movie. And so she just reached out to me. And of course, you know, I didn't really think much of it at the time because those things can fall apart in a moment. So I I didn't really have high hopes at that point. I mean, it was very honoring that they thought enough of the book that they wanted to make it into a movie, but lo and behold, it actually did become a movie. Yeah, it was a great movie. It's one of... um one of my favorite movies, especially around Christmas time, uh, I, I probably see it every year. And uh, and now that I, you know I've met you uh, a few, several years ago, you know it has more meaning to me because I know really where it originated from. Has writing always been something that you wanted to do? It was always something that I did, and I really didn't. Um, I didn't think about it. And it wasn't until it was many years ago. Someone actually, I heard someone say. You never know what one of your gifts is until someone points it out to you. And I thought, well, that makes total sense because I had always been writing and I never thought of it as a gift. I, w- I always just thought of it, was, oh, it was something that I do. You know, it was just something that kind of came easily to me. Um, it's like someone who can, you know, sit down and play at the piano without much you know, not a whole lot of effort to it. It's like, oh, it's just something that I do. You know, it's just part of who I am. It's like, no, that's a gift. That's a gift when something comes easily to you. That's one of God's gifts to you. And sometimes it does take someone to point it out to you and say, hey, you know, you got something there. <laughs> what are you doing? So you obviously have a gift and in communicating through uh, the written word. Do you write every day, or you wait till the Spirit leads you and something, something's on your heart? How does that come about? My rule of thumb has always been, because I have children, and it's always been if they were at school, that's when I would work. But if they were at home, if they're home for Thanksgiving break, Christmas break, if they're home for summer break, then I'm not working. So that's basically how I work. If they're home sick from school, I'm not working. Um, I work when they're in school. That's, that's a great mom. So when you're writing books or you think you might write a book, what are you hoping to achieve? Does it matter what book it is or do you have an ultimate goal for each book or what, what does that sound like to you in your mind? For me personally, when I write, regardless of what it is, I want by the time that last page is read, I want the reader to know that hope is alive, that despite what is happening in the world, despite what's happening in their own circumstances or life situations, that hope is alive. And so that's that's the message that I always want to get out in any of the books. And I've written about some really hard things. I've written about uh, child abuse, um, uh, sexual child abuse, sexual molestation. So I've written about hard things, but I always want the reader to know this isn't all there is. Hope is alive. Yeah. And in the the world we live in today, there's maybe not a more important message to communicate that hope is alive through Jesus than ever before, because we live in a dark time with all the unrest and all the garbage we're dealing with. So um, keep on writing, Donna. Uh, We need need that. So thanks. Uh, Thank you, Mark. Do you ever get comments or notes from people who either have read your books 
or maybe watch one of the movies from your book? Do, do people write you and encourage you? Yeah, I do. I get I get a lot of um, emails, very encouraging emails. I also get some from people who get you know angry with me. The book I wrote about child abuse, I got a lot of emails from people who were upset. They didn't want me to write about child abuse. One woman said, I don't even like to think about things like that happening, let alone read about them. But, you know, sexual molestation had happened to me when I was a kid. I'm not one to stick my head in the sand and basically told her told her the same thing. A lot of times when I get really nasty emails or whatever, I just ignore them because it takes too much energy to reach out to somebody like that. And it's, they're not going to be um, placated anyway. They're angry for whatever reason. But when I got emails where people were saying I shouldn't have written about child molestation, that one really got to me because that had happened to me. So I answered every single one of them. <laughs> I was like, I'm not letting this lie. <laughs> yeah. So what you just said there leads me to a question I wasn't planning on asking you uh, necessarily. So of the books that you have written, are they coming out of personal history, personal experiences or things that you know, or where's the the underlying story coming from? That is interesting because there have been many of them that, yeah, there may be a storyline in there where it came from something personal somewhere in my childhood or from a family member, something like that. So a lot of storylines do come from that. But some of them may just come from something that I've heard, overheard in a conversation in a coffee shop or a little snippet of something I've read okay. or I've heard on the news. And I may just kind of craft it from there, just from just from getting a, you know, just getting a morsel of a story somewhere. Yeah. So in the movie or book, The Christmas Town, it had a strong foster care, foster system, a message in it. I also saw, at least on the movie, that there was an adoption theme as well. How did that book come about as you started penning that book? What was behind that book? Well, the book itself is 100% different from the movie, because <laughs> you mentioned the movie. <laughs> the only thing that was the same with the movie was the um main character's name. That's it. They changed everything else. But The Christmas Town was about a woman who grew up in the foster care system. And I just really wanted to write about that because a lot of times when we meet someone, we may have some um, preconceived notions about them, about, ah, gosh, that person is, you know, uh, not a very good person or whatever. And we have these preconceived notions without knowing anything about their background. Where did they come from? What sort of home did they grow up in? Um, so that's why I, I really wanted to write about her. She was a young woman, really trying hard to make her way in the world, came from out of one foster home from another because both of her parents were either in jail or in prison. So she came from a pretty hard background. And I just really wanted to explore that. What does it look like for someone who comes out of that situation and the people that she meets? And fortunately, she meets people who see a lot more in her than she sees in herself. And I would hope that's how we would all want to be, is that we would look at someone and see so much more in them than they see in themselves. And to think, wow, I could be, I could be someone who can really speak 
into this person's life. I could speak truth and life and hope into this person's life. And thankfully, she meets those kind of people in the book. Yeah. And as as you know from visiting and talking with your former friends, your friends from Cedarville and knowing the university, the foster care system is something near and dear to our university. Where We have a foster care scholarship where we award a student from Ohio a full-ride scholarship. So it's important to us as a university to at least try to help in that area. But also you've written in a book, you've had an adoption theme. And I know adoption is an important message for you, not just to write about, but to live about because you've lived that world, the adoption world. I remember reading in the Cedarville magazine the story of your three adopted children, Grace, Kate, and David, which are all great stories. I, I love reading the magazine. But what captivated me about the adoption story in the magazine was of grace. What was it like for you? Take us back to that period when you're in China in that hallway and you hear your name called and that baby is coming into your arms. Can you relive that memory for us? Oh, wow. I can try. I hope I don't cry because it it really does make me cry every time. No, it's just a very, very sweet time if anybody has adopted. And for anybody who is considering it, I always tell people because they always say, oh, it's so expensive. I I don't know how we can pull it off. But I always tell people if God wants that child in your home, he will make a way for that child to get into your home. When we were adopting Gracie, I was working as a freelance writer. And up until that point, you know, I was getting I was getting work. It was trickling in. But when we were uh, waiting for her and having to pay all these bills, I got more freelance work than I ever had in my life during that time. And we paid off every single adoption bill. I know a lot of people, you know, they do GoFundMe or they do, or they, and that didn't even exist back then when we were adopting her. Um, or, you know, they'll, they're able to get grants or whatever. But, you know, we didn't do that. God provided the work that was needed and we paid off every single bill. And we waited uh, 22 months for her, which was so long. I mean, I say it was longer than the gestation of an elephant. Than <laughs> we were waiting for this little baby in China. Um, but when we when we got her, it was a crowded hotel room because we just arrived at the hotel. The plane had gotten there many hours later than it was supposed to. Got at the hotel. A lot of us in this adoption group, and. They were delivering babies and luggage at the same time. So there were, there were luggage racks filled with all these suitcases and women with babies in their arms. And so they were yelling out names. Oh, here's your luggage. <laughs> oh, here's your baby. So it was all happening at the same time. But it was just so sweet watching these babies you know, be put into the arms of their mom or their dad and just to see the looks in their eyes as they were trying to figure out who, this is the whitest person I have ever seen in my life. (laughs) Who are these people? Um, You know, and they put Gracie in my arms and I said, boy, have we been waiting for you? And she just stared at us. I mean, she had no idea what was what was going on or what was happening, but that was just the the sweetest time. And you know, all those girls are 19 years old now. My Gracie is 19 years old and she's a freshman in college. 
But I still remember that day like it was yesterday. It's just such a sweet memory. For all your all your children, what was what's more difficult, the transition and adjustment for you, you and Troy, or for the kids? Well, my kids were all little. They were 10, 11, and 12 months old. So there was a, a lot of kids, you know, when they're adopted uh, at the older ages, that's when there's a, a lot more um, uh, trauma that may be involved in coming over here and trying to adapt a, a new way of living in a, in a new home, that sort of thing. But for my kids, I mean, it just went, went off without a hitch. Uh, Kate was definitely the one who was... Um, she would suck on her sleeve when they gave her to us. Her entire sleeve was wet because she'd been sucking on it. It was a way for her to comfort herself. And we gave her a blanket and she just began uh, sucking on that. And it was so loud in the hotel room. It would keep me up at night because it was so loud. She was just trying to comfort herself because the whole time she'd been in an orphanage with very little care or comfort. And so that's what she was doing. But by the time she left China, by the time we got on that plane and left China with her, she was she was no longer sucking on her blanket because she'd found someone to comfort her. And the, the change was just amazing how she just came out of her shell during that week that, that we were there with her. As you think back to your adoptions, is there anything that, any words of encouragement that you would give to people listening to this podcast who are considering adoption? Yes, do it. <laughs> That's my word of encouragement. <laughs> that sure Absolutely. is. Yes, do it. Um, and again, I know a lot of people are afraid because it is it is expensive. They don't make it easy for you. That's for sure. But believe that if God wants that child in your home, he's going to make a way, a way to get that child in your home. And it, it's funny because I don't even think of my kids uh, as being adopted. They're just my kids. And d- during the confirmation hearings of um, Judge Amy Coney Barrett, I always cringed every time a reporter or something would say, and her two adopted children from Haiti, <laughs> you know, because uh, adoptive parents, we don't think of them as being adopted at all. They're just our kids. And I guarantee you that Judge Barrett never thinks of, oh, these are my kids and these are my adopted kids. She just doesn't think that way. It, it's just not part of your vocabulary at all. If you bring a child into your home, they become your child, period. Uh, that's, that's a good point. Uh, thanks for sharing that. I want to transition a little bit on the podcast from your books, Christmas Table to Christmas Shoes, etc., to lately you've been writing books related to Bible prophecy, which is really interesting to me. You've recently written The Time of Jacob's Trouble. What uh, motivated you to write or go down the Bible prophecy path in writing books? Well, I'll tell you the abbreviated version of it. I have been going to church, obviously, my whole life. And when I was a kid, I would hear either our pastor or a visiting pastor, even visiting missionaries, they would say things like, Jesus is coming again, or Christ is returning soon. They would say things like that. And then as I became an adult and uh, was attending church, you know, every Sunday, I realized several years ago as I was sitting there, I thought, man, I think I've heard this same message at least 50 times in my life. 
But I'd always have to check my spirit and say, okay, there may be somebody here who's never heard the message about the prodigal son or the good Samaritan, you know, so, so or, or Peter about to drown. Um, but I would always have to check my spirit and say, all right, somebody's here. They haven't heard this. This is good. But over and over again, I found myself saying things like that. Like, I have heard this same message so many times in my life. And then one Sunday, I was sitting in church, and it dawned on me. I thought, a message that I haven't heard since I was a child is the message of the return of Christ. I don't hear it anymore. I mean, it had been decades since a pastor or visiting pastor or visiting missionary had said anything about the return of Christ. And then it it really became noticeable to me because each and every Sunday, and then I, I realized that even the word sin wasn't mentioned anymore. No, and pastors weren't talking about sin and how that separates us from God and that there will be a final judgment on sin. So the words judgment were no longer in the vocabulary, the word wrath. And I know these are hard words. Nobody likes to hear about the wine press of God's wrath or his cup of anger. Right. You, you don't want to hear about those things, but it is part of the truth. It's God's word, and it's a thread from the in the entire scripture all the way through the Old Testament, through the New Testament. Someone told Francis Chan once, they got kind of upset with him, and they said, oh, Francis, you're talking about God's vengeance, and that's only in the Old Testament. And he said, oh, yeah, he really mellows out in Revelation, <laughs> which is true. That's funny. Like, yeah. And, uh, and, you know, and... Over the years, people have turned revelation into metaphor. They've turned it into it's just allegory. It's just a story. Well, we're told seven times, seven, the number of completion and perfection. We're told seven times in Revelation, it's prophecy. It's a book of prophecy. It's going to unfold according to God's time. And so it just became so obvious to me that pastors weren't talking about it. Uh, some do, of course. I'm not saying all pastors, but um, a lot of pastors weren't talking about it anymore. Christian universities, you'd probably have to go way back in your archives to see if there's been a speaker that has talked about it at chapel. It's just not spoken of anymore. It's just not taught. And so one day, it just seems like God deposited the idea into my heart, write a book that is a lot of it be fiction, but the last part of it be biblical teaching about what people just read. Because Mark, the statistics prove the millennials and Generation Z, they don't know anything about this because again, their pastors haven't taught it to them. So I wanted people to be able to pick up a book, not only people our age, but these millennials and Gen Z, have them pick it up, have them get interested in it. And then in the back, there's all the biblical teaching about what they just read. I'm so grateful because I am hearing from people. I heard from one mom. She said, my daughter is 17 years old. She read this book twice. And she said, mom, I never knew this was in the Bible. I heard from a grandmother. She said, I bought this for my 14-year-old grandson and he read it. And then he sat down with me and he asked all sorts of questions because he didn't know about any of this. 
that was in the Bible. That's awesome to me that I'm hearing those stories. Now, the book actually came out one week after the country shut down <laughs> because of the pen. Oh, it was perfect timing. You know, I am hoping and praying that people do become aware of it because it it became so, I don't know what the word is, frustrating, sad to me, really, that every single Christian radio program that I would hear, they were constantly talking about fear and anxiety during the pandemic. Over and over again, fear and anxiety, fear and anxiety, people talking about safety and security. And it just be, it, it became th- just this resounding gong, really, this noise that was coming from Christian radio. And I so wanted them to talk about what the Bible says, that this is part of the signs that Jesus talked about, that we are living in those last days, that the shadow of those end times are covering us now. We can feel that shadow. I wanted people to talk about that, but not to talk about the fear of it, but to talk about the hope of it. But we got so, um, so, uh, what's the right word? Not concerned, but this myopic vision of only talk about fear and safety and to talk about anxiety and, and depression. And I wish people would go into the word and say, I know these are hard truths, but Jesus said these days would come. Jesus said that there would be pandemics, there would be plagues. But he also said, when you see these things begin to happen, lift up your head, look up. That's right, because your redemption is drawing near. And so I like to say that things are looking up. I know that this is a really scary time for a lot of people. Hey, Troy and I both had COVID. We went through it. Yes, we went through it. And I am uh and I'm sitting here smiling today. I mean, we didn't fear it when we got it. It was like, all right, it's a virus, you know. It's going to we're going to let it pass through our system. But we got it and we're still here and I still know that things are looking up. I'm still looking for our blessed hope. Yeah, we are we are called to uh, gloriously wait for, or anticipate his appearing and his return. Uh, I think a lot of people these days, you mentioned it, are, are living during the pandemic in a state of fear. And we talk about mental health and different issues and those are all important things. But you have the ultimate answer in Jesus and talking about that we shouldn't be surprised that we're going through this with what Scripture says. But all your feedback on this book hasn't been positive, has it? I think I heard you talking with right. somebody else uh, on a podcast that uh, you, because you had fiction, which is really unique, in with Bible prophecy, that hooked the, p- the people in. But some people are kind of surprised when they get to the end of the book, right? Right. Yes. I had one woman, uh, she emailed me and she said it was too scriptured for her. Yeah, that's it. (laughs) That's it. I didn't even know it was a word, but it was too scriptured. She didn't like that. Um, But to me, if, if God has already proven himself over and over and over again with prophecies in the Bible that have been fulfilled, they haven't been fulfilled 80%. Haven't been fulfilled. Ninety-two percent. Those prophecies, prophecies that have been fulfilled, have been fulfilled with one hundred percent accuracy. 
if God has that kind of track record, and there is no there is no religious text in the entire world that has even one prophecy that has been fulfilled, and and God God has over five hundred already, and if He's already fulfilled that that many, we can be assured that the remaining prophecies in the Bible will will come to completion, just as He said. So if He has that kind of track record. Wouldn't we, shouldn't we at least be a little bit interested in what he says about the end, about these last days? Absolutely. I think if, if his death, burial, and resurrection is, is accurate, we better believe the back end of the book because it's, it's just as accurate as the beginning. So, right, um, right, yeah. right. And we see, we see these signs. We know we're in the season, Mark. We know we're in the season of Christ's return. Um, because when you and I were kids, there may have been a sign that happened. Oh, there might have been like an earthquake, but then there'd be months would go by before we'd hear something else, right? But now, but now it's not only daily, it's like hourly. We get these alerts of all these things that are happening, all these Matthew 24 signs. Um, so we see them all around us, and we know that we're in the season of Christ's return. Yeah, so be encouraged uh, as you listen to this podcast uh, of Donna's words and, and the truth that uh, Christ is returning. Um, we just don't know when, but we know it's going to happen. So I know you've written one one book, and you have another book coming out pretty soon, if I remember right, and then maybe a third book uh, with Bible prophecy. What Can you give us the inside secret of what's coming next? Yes, in March is the second book, and that's called The Day of Ezekiel's Hope, because in Ezekiel uh, 38, there's a great a great war that takes place as a coalition of nations come against Israel. So that's where the title comes from, because God will supernaturally save Israel. It, that conflict has never happened in the history of the world. If you If you read those passages, you can see that um, that war has never happened. So that is a future war. And so that's where the title comes from, is the day of Ezekiel's hope. Uh, as we um, continue and, and move near toward probably the end of the podcast, um, I want to transition a little bit. Um, we've already uh, stated that you're a wife, you're a mother of three children. Um, we're living in difficult days. You, I didn't know until today that you, you and Troy have survived COVID. That's great news. Uh, <laughs> that's really good news to hear. Um, but how, how are you and how is your family working through these difficult days when it seems like everything is spiraling out of control? Well, it does feel like everything's spiraling out of control, but I do like to say that things are looking up. And that's actually one of the words that I use, Mark. I say things are spiraling out of control, but things are looking up. And so Troy and I, we we don't have we never had that personality of of fear. Um my girls, they work at a Publix grocery store here in the Tennessee area. And they worked through the entire pandemic. They never stopped working. The statistics were, were showing and proving that that young kids just really weren't affected that much. The few kids who did get it at school, it ended up being more like a cold for them. So they kept working through the whole thing. They never had any fear at all. We 
you know, we just tried to in- encourage one another and we try, we kept church going. Of course we had to do that online, which I hate. What a horrible way uh, to do church. Gosh, I couldn't wait till churches opened up again. Um, but yeah, we just didn't live in that state of fear. And there are a lot of believers here. I mean, we know some of them who are l- still living in that state of fear. And that's a hard place to be. That's a really sad, hard place to be. Yeah. I believe this, and we've said this on campus several times. Last year when we had the students leave campus because of COVID, the start of COVID, and, and they went to totally online, I, I remember uh, the president and others talking about, you know, not, not to live in a spirit of fear and not to waste this opportunity to share the gospel with people because it's, it's a golden opportunity because people are looking for answers, and, and we have the answers, which is Jesus. Keep doing what you're doing, being that bright light in, in Tennessee and then throughout the world. Donna, you're a delight to spend time with. Um, thanks for your great work in writing. And I'm, I'm glad also that uh, uh, the movie people love to take your books and make movies out of because that just uh, spreads this, the message even greater. And uh, I wish you the very best. Uh, keep uh, writing good stuff and uh, stay in touch and come back to Cedarville University and, and visit us sometime. Uh, Thanks, Mark. Appreciate you taking time today. Thank you for listening to Cedarville Stories podcast brought to you by Cedarville University. If you were encouraged by this conversation, like I was, please share this episode with a friend. If you know of an awesome Cedarville story, share it with us. We would love to showcase how God is at work in the Cedarville family. And be sure to come back next week when we'll hear another Cedarville story for God's glory.